Here we go. O Lord, support us all the day long until the shadows lengthen and the evening comes and our busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work is done. Then in your mercy, grant us safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Amen. Amen. You can, you know, Shakespeare's influence on the Book of Concord, or the Book of Concord, on the Book of Common Prayer. I wish on the Book of Concord. Uh, 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 it wasn't a very Germanic sort of prayer, you know. It was a sort of the... All right, a couple of things. Next week, 9.45, in this room, there's a voters meeting to extend a call to Peter Savitsky. You've done this uh, literally since I've been here 15 or 20 times. People do the colloquy. Their job turns into a call. Nothing changes for you except... Um, you know, uh, a call sort of solidifies, puts him on the roster of the Senate and everything. So if you can come here, it shouldn't take more than 20 minutes, but if you can come at uh, 9.45, if you don't want to come, and if you don't show up, the governing board will be a quorum and they'll act like voters and they'll do it. But if you want to come and uh, do it. Anybody a question about that? This is something that we're asked to do by the Senate. We try to play along where we can. So there's it's just like being a child. You cooperate in these places, so when you don't want to cooperate otherwise, you can point back to these places and say, but I was so good that day. Understand how this works, right? Uh, okay, good. Um, it's so many things that are so interesting right now that I just to try to focus here on what... New members, if you know anybody who should come to the catechumener on Saturday mornings, send them along. You know, once you get uh, one or two or three or four classes deep, then it's very difficult for people to catch up because everything builds on everything else. But among the best questions yesterday was, um, what do I do with my relatives who don't go to church on Thanksgiving? Now, there's so many things about that question that are glorious. But I, well, later I thought, I, you know, I, was, I could remember being <clears throat> at my aunt and uncle's house one time where the aunts were arguing ostensibly for who had to stay home and watch the turkey <laughs> while everybody else went to church on Thanksgiving. Now, of course, it's a very cranky church with a very boring pastor. And you could just see that, you know, they had never loved cooking the way they loved cooking on that day. <laughs> So, yeah, I sort of reflected on that in light of the question. Of course, um, if you're Lutheran, of course, what do you do when people don't want to go to church? What do you do? Yeah, you yell at them, go to church! That's what you do. You should go to church! Be the end if you don't go to church, stuff like that. And then they go to church, and what does the pastor do? He yells at them, you should go to church! And then, you know, you kind of go. <laughs> the death spiral is now in play. So um, then, of course, I was kind of thinking about other things, and uh, then I was caught in a bit of reverie, and uh, I thought back to Hagia Sophia, and you, you know this. You know, people tell this story in different ways. But the basic story is um, the pagan prince of Kiev about 957 wants to, decides he should get religion, but in a very, you know, enlightened way, he sends out his emissaries, they go to see the Muslims, he's not that impressed, and then he goes to see the Pope, and it's not that big a deal. But then he goes to Hagia Sophia, some of you have been here, not the Hagia Sophia you visited, because let me just tell you, when they were there, 
that sort of country club green shag carpet that covers all the floor mosaics, that was not there. So, and Jesus was actually looking down from above, not covered with a bed sheet. They go to Hagia Sophia and cleverly, of course, they have a mass in their honor. And then this is the reported text and this is fairly well attested, so right at the beginning. We knew not whether we were in heaven or earth, for on earth there is no such splendor or such beauty, right? So you can yell at people about going to church or you can do beautiful things. And so the, the, the title today, baiting but not switching, right? So I mean, this is um, a young person the other day compared dating to fishing. Bait in the water and watch the bobber for see what might happen next. That's not unlike having people come to church. So I can see why my aunts didn't want to go to church because it was, you know, a church of cranky people with a boring pastor. You kind of go, if I had four hours of my life, I wouldn't spend it there either. But you remember kind of long ago, far away, how did this work? And so, you know, I went back and kind of read this old thing that I had written to you way back 14 years ago now. But I'm curious if you remember this. So a brief description of the revised sanctuary design. I, um, now, I, when I think back on these things, I, I can't quite believe that we had the energy to do this and then all the other things that were actually going on to it. It seems like a dream in some ways. But, um, you know, this is our attempt at baiting but not switching, right? Start by remembering the task in an existing space on a tight budget. So the whole thing was done for inside was a couple of million bucks. That includes a million bucks for the pipe organ. So it was really a very tight budget in terms of construction. In an existing space on a tight budget, design a Christological, incarnational, sacramental, liturgical sanctuary that's warm and intimate, beautiful without being extravagant, and that teaches well bearing Christ and his gifts to his people, right? It's a, it's a fabulous and fearsome task. It was a remarkable thing. For you who weren't here, um, the people in the congregation primarily demoed the very few things that were in here. It was a stage and um, some chairs, so that wasn't hard. Uh, but they sort of demoed everything, and we had a plain box. And I do remember when the electrician came in, uh, first of all, and he said to me, this is great. Every church should have a big gymnasium. <laughs> so that's the point at which it was stripped out. And so then we said, you know, what, what can we do? Now, I wonder if you remember all the things that have happened. One thing that's not in this little list, I just walked in this morning and I was thinking, like, do you remember that, you know, the aisles crossed in the way of the three crosses on Calvary? Do you remember that? If you stand on the balcony and look up, do you realize there's marks of three crosses on the floor, right? Or do you, when you walk by and you see the red stone, do you look and you see one white stone and three white stones, three and one, one and three for the Holy Trinity? Like there's all these little things going on, or even that the stone came from Jerusalem. I mean, I remember the day those pallets came and clearly because they were all, they were dumped off, but they were all marked in Hebrew letters. I got a great picture of it, you know, it looks like Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's fabulous kind of stuff. But if you haven't thought about this for a while, you might. 
as you come to the doors, and you remember that the door pulls are wax cast from a Byzantine cathedral, right? So there's nothing that was kind of innovative. We sort of pulled from all over the place. Twelve sections of half circle comprise an embracing and inviting entryway. Twelve is good. Whenever our Lord is having himself a twelve, twelve tribes of Israel, twelve disciples, twelve baskets full of food left over after feeding the five thousand, twelve gates of heaven, our Lord is having himself a church. You may have never actually kind of realized this, right? But, you know, everything has a sacredness about it. And there's a way that this is meant to sort of pull you into the next place. It was actually modeled on a church in Cambridge that we used to visit. And then 20 years later, I saw a photo of it and they had cut the sanctuary in half. It was the strangest thing. They'd build a glass wall here. There's just enough room for the priest to get to the altar. And so um, he would say mass here. And on the other side of the wall, they turned it into a coffee shop. And um, so, because they had to pay the bills, right? And so nobody went to church, and so uh, they hadn't grasped people. And so this very strange thing of where there was this very secular thing happened, and only by a panel of glass separated by the most sacred thing that could possibly happen on this earth. This is very, so striking in my head. But then I began to think about this uh, liminal possibility between, you know, what's secular and sacred, what's outside and what's inside. But what would pull you, um, sort, of, sort of what would pull you in to the next thing? What sort of invites, right? And you can, you can see the hermeneutic here. You can see the method, right? So this is very different than yelling at people, go to church. What you want people, what you, I mean, basically what you want is you want the turkey here to be better than the turkey at home, right? You want people running toward this and not toward that. And I'm going to try to make a case for that, but I'm also going to try to make a case for it that goes through the cross, which is a difficult case to make unless you've experienced it. And once you've experienced it, you um, won't settle for less. And for people who have left, this is part of the answer to yesterday's question, which is so pregnant with answers. It's the people haven't experienced it. You know, um, somewhere I remember Tihard de Chardin says something like, you know, when people don't believe the gospel, it's because we haven't ever, it's because we haven't pr presented the gospel well enough. It's on us, right? And we should think about the world in that way. So you start to think about, I'm always actually startled when people actually would come, come into the church. It would be like you going into a synagogue or into a mosque this morning. Your comfort level would be very low and your possibility for error would be very high. Um, my daughter, a few years ago, decided to vacation in Iran. You can see that I'm a bad parent. <laughs> in addition to calling my Russian friends, including the bishop, to have an entryway out for dangers which she did not appreciate, um, among them, many things happened, uh, starting with putting on a hijab as soon as you get into Iranian airspace on your commercial flight. But... Um, there was a point where there was a misstep and she uh, moved on to the men's side of the mosque and all hell broke loose. Um, the only good thing was that she had a guide who was a grisly old um, Iranian war veteran. His story was that he had stepped on a landmine that had crippled his leg but killed everybody else uh, in his unit around him, 12 or 13 people. So he was the sort of man who didn't take guff from anybody. 
Once you've stepped on a landmine, pretty much everything else seems less dangerous. <laughs> so he sort of rescued the, the day. But, but the thing is, is you can, um, you know, your comfort level in a new place can be, you know, and of course, is this us? You know, maybe not here in this congregation, I hope not, but is this us as a church body? What, when people wander in, what do they sense? Right? This is why, for example, even downstairs, it was designed exactly the way it's designed, where you would um, grab a cup of coffee, drop your coat, and go to the washroom if you need. There's a reason why every last thing was designed the way it's designed. Why? Because most people feel alone and unloved, and the whole point was to have people feel not alone and not unloved from the very first moment they walked in. Right? It's a reason I ask anybody who I know well enough who's between 30 and 40 to drink their coffee by the windows. Because people who are 30 years old and look through the windows are asking themselves a single question, is it safe? Right? And if they see people here who are wonderful, fabulous, 20 or 30 years old, by the window, that's the notion that it's safe. It's a mark of beauty that people hang together with smiles on their faces. Right? All of these things have to be thought about. This is not casual or inconsequential. This matters at the deepest possible level. And then this is really important, right? The hermeneutics. So, well, Rob, this one is for you. You were so clever yesterday and, you know, but no one should ever be left in doubt. Here's another one for you. The Lord never does anything halfway or to nagle it. The Lord does everything full blast or the gospel is always more. Since our Lord never does anything halfway, a half circle means there must be more what lies beyond, right? So there's this way of, like, it's 12, so it must be fabulous, but it's a half, so there must be more, right? Where should this go now? As you step inside all the aisles, draw your eyes to the center of our Lord. You notice this, right? All the vectors from any direction shoot toward the cross. Wherever you're sitting, toward the cross. Not toward the altar, the passion's not the big deal toward the cross, toward the icon, toward Jesus who's bleeding for you. As you step inside, all the owls draw your eyes to the center of our life together, the Eucharist. As before, and you who are old enough, you remember what a trauma this was um, to get the victory window in a place of prominence. Uh, the victory window stands watch from behind the altar, proclaiming the joy that awaits us on the last day. If you've never, if you're new and you've never looked at that window, you should actually walk around. The best part of the window may be the bottom where the angel is spearing Satan, who appears as an alligator or a lizard of some sort. He's spearing him at the bottle, bottom to, to throw cover for these people who are walking up into heaven. This is a beautiful thing, what's going on there, right? You're safe, it'll be fine, hold on. So, you know, um, near the door, at the point where the aisles make the sign of the cross, is, uh, is the, oh, sorry, one more thing. How do we go safely from here to there? As before, the victory window stands watch from behind the altar, proclaiming the joy awaiting us on the last day. But how do we go safely from here to there? That's Emmaus, right? We talked about that. Near the door, at the point where the aisles make the sign of the cross, so be conscious of that. The, the, it makes the sign of the cross as you walk in is a round font where Christians are made with water and name. Its circle is the sign of eternity. 
Its location is marked by the Paschal candle. You want to get baptized? Go to the light. You want to get baptized? Go to the candle. You want to get baptized? Go to Jesus Christ is the light of the world, the light no darkness can overcome. You want to get baptized? Then um, let this be, be this burning light on a hill, right? Let your light shine before all people that they may know Christ. And so we give you a candle from the candle, one more disciple made at the font when you get baptized. It's circled as the sign of eternity. Its location is marked with the Paschal candle. As we learned on Ascension Day, if we want to find Christ, we go to the font. And so that's why the candle moves for the days of the Ascension, when Jesus seems to have disappeared. Um, it goes to the altar, and then the Paschal candle comes back on Ascension Day. If you want to find Jesus, start with the water. To be baptized there is to die and rise with him, and we've done this now, Romans 6. We did it here and on Saturday. The dying happens on the sixth day, Good Friday, and so the grate surrounding the font has six sides. Christ rises on the eighth day, Easter morning, and so do we, right? Baptized into God's time. So you're God's child and you're baptized into God's time and your life is meant to be a series of eights. I don't know if you think about your life that way, but every day is resurrection day for you. If you wake up in the morning, it's a fresh day with the possibility of living in the mercy of God, right? Baptized into God's time, eighth day time, we're delivered into the body of the Christ with the burst of eight rays. So count them, right? There's round and then six and then round and then three and one and then eight and all of that even before you sort of get past the balcony where the music is always better. Go past the balcony. The music was fabulous this morning. Um, what's given once at the font is nourished for a lifetime at the altar. The eight sides of the rail draw us near. Now, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but the eight gives way to another eight, right? Eight sides on the rail. Eights can always be trusted to be marking our Lord's work. Our Lord speaks eight time in creation, let there be light, right? Let there be day, let there be night. Our Lord speaks eight time in creation. He floats eight to safety in Noah's Ark. He circumcises boys on the eighth day to make the members of Israel. You're circumcised, you're a full member of Israel. It's a great uh, analogy for infant baptism, for example. It's what done to you. None of those little boys say, cut me, right? But once they're cut, they're full children of Israel. I just think about baptism in that way too. It's done to you. Even if you might be resisting of it or if it makes you cry. It's done to you and it marks you. God does it to you. Jesus baptizes you. Yahweh circumcises his children. Yahweh makes his Israel. He does it to you. Your only response is, thank you very much. You die and you rise in baptism. You were not and now you are, our guide in Greece. Children don't exist until they're baptized, right? So the circle inside assures us that we're in the right place. Circumcises his boys on the eighth day to make the members of Israel. He raises his crucified son on the eighth day. The circle inside assures us we're in the right place. Look, we didn't get to this. We must have run out of money. The steps were meant to say, as is common in churches, sanctus, 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 as you go up, 
right? So three steps or eight steps up to the altar. Just, you can count them. You know, you, you, have to have a, you have a holy number of steps going up. Normally, um, sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. Interesting, I was at the seminary, the Catholic seminary in Mundelein for a, some lectures a few years ago. I went with Ted Kahn who took me to that, the sainted Ted Kahn for whom we prayed this morning. Um, this is a nice, the pastor, we should go to the seminary and listen about the Easter visual. I'm like, I'm all in on that. In the, in the seminary where we were, instead of Sanctus, 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 they had um, seven steps, as I recall, and on each one, the orders by which a man would follow so that he could eventually come to celebrate the Eucharist. So um, doorkeeper, lector, exorcist, acolyte, every step one makes on the way to being a priest. Now Lutherans, um, that gets to be a bit too much for them, um, which is okay, but we can default to holy, 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 right? We just didn't, we just didn't quite get there. Uh, so many things that we didn't do because, you know, for a couple of million bucks, you gotta just say, well, that's not the thing. But it was interesting that it was in the early play. Sanctus, 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 say the steps leading to the holy place, singing with the angels from eternity. Encircled is an altar with eight sides. Um, that circle uh, is 10 feet across. This is actually something that I'd forgotten. So two things about the, about the altar. One thing I'd forgotten that the circle, we'd made it exactly 10 feet across. 10 again also is a holy number absorbed from the West, from the Romans, from the decimal system, right? But so eight is a holy number, three is a holy number, one is a holy number, 12 is a holy number, 10 is absorbed as a holy number. You get that more in Revelation. And then also, um, you know, I don't always bring these things to mind. I remember when I first, um, when, the, when the altar first appeared, there was uh, a hue and cry from someone who really gave me an earful about, it, I could be summed up this way, God doesn't like square altars. Now here's the thing. Uh, two things about that. One is, when I preached Kendall's ordination back at his first church in Storm Lake, you know, there was green jello with pretzels because it was an ordination. But I slid my green jello back and I looked at the placemat and lo and behold, there was a placemat about how that church was made and it was done the old fashioned way. This is actually a true thing. They used to take a huge stone, drop it into the mud, cut the top off flat and build the church around it because that was the altar, and it was the center of life. Crazy, right? Let me try, try explaining that to your architect. There was a picture on that placemat of a crane dropping the stone into the mud. I'm like, that is, I would, it wasn't where it was then, but it must have been in their history somewhere. But of course, that's Old Testament stuff, right? Build some stones, build a stone altar, build an altar to Yahweh, build, build, a, build an altar on which you'll make sacrifices. Well, um, we, you, grew up in the West with uh, eventually through medieval times a preferences for long altars. Anybody know why long rectangular altars came into being? Got any guesses? A close casket. Close enough, close enough. Tomb is close enough, but casket, right? So you build a casket, a coffin for Jesus, because that's the body that died. And of course, that's the body that comes to life in the mass. But then um, 
I don't know if you know this, but the altar here is exactly the same ratio, not dimension, so we didn't have enough room to make it that big. It's exactly the same ratio as the altar in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Not the temple, the tabernacle. And I'd sort of, you know, these things that have sort of escaped me over the years, but I remember sort of trying to figure out how old that were. And there's even a name, and I'd have to go look for this, the, the marble that's underneath um, looks like tohu abohu. It looks like formless and void. And there was a name for that, that marble on the bottom, that um, underneath the, the altar, uh, which would basically had a reference to chaos. But if you ever get close enough to the altar top, it's like Van Gogh's Starry Night. You should join the altar guild just to look at the altar top. And what's interesting, it has these little chips of silver. It's mica, I think. Does anybody know about stones? Yes, is that what it is? Is that what it is? Okay. Now, here's the thing. I probably asked that, if I've asked that question a hundred times, I've had nobody, one who knew anything, and two who actually knew anything, and three raised their hands so quickly. So congratulations. He'll be leading the fossil tour from the stones in Jerusalem at some point. Well, so we buy this beautiful, um, basically heavenly, so you basically, the stone underneath is this chaotic, swirling, like pre-creation, how will anything ever good come out of this? And then the altar top is this beautiful, glittering, looks like the stars of heaven, you can't get close enough to it, you should kiss it too, it's gorgeous. And you say to yourself, you know, how do you move from chaos to the beautiful order of heaven in the top, the, bo the body and blood of Jesus, of course. And so on the top, if you join the altar guild, you will see this, are cut in the five crosses. One, two, three, four, five, representing the five wounds of Christ. And um, of course, that slab is unbroken. It's one piece because Jesus died, but he was not broken. And so uh, what happens there is you have this great witness to the beauty of Jesus who comes to us there, who comes to us on the altar, right? This is unbelievable, all the things that are happening there. When we bought it, we couldn't get, none of the stone makers would touch it. Because of the mica, they said to, 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 to cut those, they said, to, to, they were afraid that if they cut um, the crosses in the top, that uh, it would chip, it would shatter, right? And we wouldn't have a clean edge, right? Did you help me with this? Maybe you did. Yeah, and the thing is, we had to, we actually, we found somebody who was overly confident enough. <laughs> and I remember it was cut when it was a day when I wasn't here, and so John Crow kindly sent me before and after pictures as I sweated it out in some meeting somewhere. <laughs> This John took care of everything as he does about so many things, right? You're, the only reason you're here and comfortable is because John is here. So, you know. Uh, but see, you know, all these things you kind of you fit together. And if you can kind of absorb them and remember that they're there, your comfort level can shoot way up anyway. Um, nourished by what comes from that altar, holy body and holy blood, for our forgiveness and life everlasting, we're sent back out into the world to do his bidding, right? As the 12 tribes of Israel mark that perfect unity of heaven and earth, so we, his 12 
his community, his body, his church, are sent to the four corners of the earth. Next time you go to Rome, you have a couple of options. You can join the Catholic Church, you can pretend you're Catholic, or you can do what I did, which is said, I'm a Lutheran pastor, but Catholics are the bomb. So just like, you guys are great. And what you want to do is you want to write and you want to go on the Scavi tour, which is a tour that you have to, you're standing it and looking at the front of St. Peter's. You go to the right side, and the first time you go, you'll walk toward like you know what's going on. And then the Swiss guards, this is no lie, they will drop their lances in your direction. So you don't move too quickly. And then you stumble around, you know. Um, of course, they speak all languages, but you can't figure out what language you speak at the point of a lance. And you, what you want to do is get behind them and turn right, which is this little, little office, which is about as big as that television. You walk in and you scavi tour, which is the tour that takes you down to see Peter's tomb. I'm a believer. Um, you know, some things are a two and 10, some things are a, 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 you know, a 10 and 10. This is probably a nine or maybe a 10 and 10. It was a scrap heap and there was excavated just a little stake that said, Peter is here, and you know, um, later the church is built over that, and then the excavations, you can sort of peer in where the stake is, uh, was put, right? Anyway, the point of all that is, you get to walk out through then under the altar of the Vatican, but on the floor, remarkably, there are all these compasses. And if you start to pay attention, there's fours everywhere, and they are for, of course, north, south, east, and west, because that's what the church is supposed to do. And now we're back where we started, right? You, you build this wonderful thing that goes out north, south, east, and west, and then lures everybody back in. It's for you, of course it's for you, but it is for them as much as for you. And if you could remember that every time you're cranky, every time you're boring, every time you, know, you, you go up to somebody and say, you're in my seat, or you parked in my place, or uh, you take the last cup of coffee and move away like nothing just happened. Something happened, you took the last cup of coffee, okay? <laughs> you wonder why people don't go to church? De Chardin, maybe because the people who were in the church never spoke welcomely enough about the gospel. Maybe they didn't speak about the gospel the way Jesus does in the Beatitudes today. Let me just tell you, after hearing the Beatitudes, you wanna hang out with Jesus. That's the guy you want to have a beer with because he's got great stories, but he's very humble and he puts your interests first and you know he's going to care for you. And if things go down, he's right there with you, right? Is that the sense that people get when they walk into a church? And everything we did inside is meant to remind you that's what the church is supposed to be about. The place is beautiful, so you'll be beautiful. The place is welcoming, so you'll be welcoming. The place teaches, so you'll teach. The place is loving, so you'll be loving. You know, the problem is not with people who don't want to come to church. Pretty much anybody I run into under the age of 30 has this spiritual yearning that's only been erased by the shallowness of the world today. And they think that's all they've got. And if they bump onto you, into you, and they don't see anything beyond that shallowness, why would they get up an extra morning? Come on, sir, but the, <laughs> the problem is, Max, there's some people I'd like to give it to particularly. You <laughs> see, that's all sinful, isn't it, right? As my wife says, I've been sassy lately. I confessed that to you yesterday. 
I didn't believe her until Mary Caesar said it to me too. And right now, asking Mary to cut that part out of this tape, I, now see, now I'm really nervous. <laughs> It's all of one cloth. You're all of one cloth. So I just want to encourage you to imitate, um, you know, what you see here. Uh, you know, it ran in the bulletin the night we um, consecrated the space. The building always wins. Right? The building always wins. And uh, you should just try to remember that. You should try to imitate everything you see in there from, you know, and frankly, you should take care of it. And... Frankly, it should be just the best possible thing that you can offer to somebody else as a welcome to come here. And then, you know, the kindness that flows from you or the gospel that runs out of the cross or, you know, why haven't I come like that? Because, you know, today when Pastor Nelson elevates the chalice, you should see the blood dripping from Jesus' eyes right down into that cup and then poured right onto your tongue. And when that happens, you got a chance right? For a life that's bigger than normal life, for a life that's not shallow, for a life that's together. That's all the things that need to be done. So, you know, I really wasn't even going to read this today, but now I'm at least a week behind. Hold on to this. We'll come back and do it again next week. But I just want you to please, 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 right? Think about what it means for other people to walk into this church and try to think about why you're doing what you're doing and kind of know, I mean, I'm always struck every week now when I write, I'm like, yeah, this is, I've said this a hundred times. Um, and I can't ever figure out if I should never say it again or say it a hundred and one times, right? I just, it's hard to, but in any case, at some point, you know, uh, you know, those who are younger can kind of figure it out, okay? I don't want to start something else. Let's pray and let's go. I love you all, but I hope you're more beautiful when you leave here today than you were when you came in, okay? <laughs> Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thanks, friends.